The Dickheads are presented in color. Hello, Dickheads! Like a pink laser beam of truth beaming from all over the country to your brain hole. We have guests in Seattle, Orange County, San Diego, and Massachusetts here to talk on a very special topic, one that I know you guys are really excited to get into, and that is the Vallis incident of 1974. The reason we're talking about it is because that's where we are in the uh, Philip K. Dick canon as far as reading for the podcast. And I am so excited about this panel that we have assembled. I'm going to introduce everybody, and then we'll just get into it. Um, First joining us is Tessa Dick, who, yes, you might recognize that last name, okay? (laughs) Tessa is an author, and she has written books on the subject of Philip K. Dick, including Conversations with Philip K. Dick and Philip K. Dick, Remembering Firebright. And you're also working on a book on this very topic, but you're also the only person here who had a son with Philip K. Dick and... (laughs) And was living with him during this incident. So, Tessa, thank you so much for joining Dickheads today. My uh, for, pleasure. For your second time, you were on the podcast recorded in Colorado as well. So, and one of our most popular episodes. So, uh, we're very thankful to have you back. Also joining us is William Serrell. Serrell. Serrell, sorry. Um, everyone's going to laugh because I always pronounce names wrong. Um Now, Bill, you are a biochemist, uh, an energy healer, and a spiritual teacher. You've been doing all that stuff for 35 years, but you came to know Philip K. Dick as a house guest, and we'll get more details on that in a little bit, Uh, but you are really important to us because you you were a close friend of Phil's when he was alive and have a lot of thoughts on the Vallis incident, and uh, there was just, there was... I couldn't do this without you. I wasn't going to do this without you. So I had to have you here. Thank you for joining Dickheads. Thank you. Looking forward. All right. And our final panelist, um, at the re- uh, request of David Gill, long, uh, a popular guest on our podcast, is Ted Hand. Ted is a public school teacher and a longtime participant in the PKD fan community. And if you've been a part of this community, you've seen his talks from the Philip K. Dick Festival online, or you're familiar with his tarot cards, which he designed. Uh, I, I'm correct on that, right? You, you helped design the tarot cards. Um, you were a longtime assistant to Grania Davis and, um, You've done a PKD and religion blog for many years, which has collected notes on the exogenous and Phil's Gnosticism. And that's why you had to be here today. So, Ted, welcome to the Dickheads podcast. Uh, You're muted. Let me make a quick note about Bill. uh, That that might help to give a a window into my interests here. Uh, you know, sure. Bill was present for this conversation with Phil that, that apparently had a big deal to do with the inspiration for Maze of Death. And there's an unpublished document, the so-called uh, Maze of Death uh, theology that's floating around on the Internet. Uh, I got it from Patrick Clark. 
that's a, a really cool read and uh, lays out sort of pre-exegesis uh, some of the the like weird like cosmological theological ideas that that were part of the inspiration to the Vallis experiences in '74. Yeah, and anyone who's listened to our episode on Maze of Death, we talked about Bill a lot. His ears were ringing a lot that day when we recorded that. I'm sure. Um, and uh, so, yeah, the Maze of, De- Maze of Death connection is definitely very important too because I think it's a lot of Phil's theological ideas. So we'll get into that. So. Let's go around and start with how we, how you first met Phil or his work. Um, Tessa, you didn't know who Phil was before uh, the first time you met him. Am I correct? Right. Interestingly, years later when I started taking classes at Chapman College, one of the professors asked me, whether I was related to Phil Dick. And I said, well, yeah, you you know who he is? Because nobody did. But he had quite a fan base among academia. Mm -hmm. When I met him, his girlfriend had dumped him and he was being clingy. So she was trying to find someone else for him. (laughs) Right. And then, uh, right. But did you know much about his uh, religious or theological views? Like, did that come up early on in in meeting Phil? Well, the I Ching came on early, and plus his friendship with Bishop Pike, the Mm -hmm. author of The Other Side, where he tried to contact the spirit of his dead son through seances and Phil and his third wife, Nancy attended some of those seances. So they're mentioned as an acknowledgement in the preface or foreword. forget what he called it. Anyway, so Phil had a mystical side, but it, you know, just over time it developed that he was a faithful Episcopalian, but he wouldn't go to church because of all his phobias. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to think about how different the Vallis incident would have been if Bishop Pike was still alive and somebody that he could talk to. It's, it's one of those things that those kind of what ifs that, you know, I mean, him him being gone, Bishop Pike being gone is a part of the story in a lot of ways. Right. But Phil did um, spend a lot of time with the Episcopal priest in the local parish, one-on-one discussing religion. And when my son was kicked out of a Lutheran school for not going to Sunday school, Phil went with us to talk to the principal and try to change his mind. And he demonstrated a very deep knowledge of of, um, not only the scripture, but also theology. Didn't work, but oh well. (laughs) Well, and Bill, how did... How did you become friends with Phil? Because I believe you knew Phil a little bit earlier than Tessa, right? Yeah. A couple of years. How did you meet Phil? 
Um, I'd always admired his work. Um, I found, for a lot of reasons, he was a not just a great science fiction writer, but really inspirational to me in a lot of ways. And I'd contacted some people who knew him. I was, you know, Phil was uh, very friendly with the fan community. He was basically a fan himself. And uh, I contacted uh, Terry Carr, an old friend who was a science fiction editor at that point, and talked to him about Phil. And he said, well, you know, you could just write him. (laughs) And I did. And I exchanged letters with him and said that uh, this was like 1968. And I said I was thinking of coming out to the uh, World Science Fiction Convention in Berkeley. That was Baycon the World Science Fiction Convention. I went out there, met him, and it was kind of like an instant connection. Nancy was there too, and he invited me to stay with them. I didn't want to push it too far, but I wound up staying with him for a total of a month in two two two-week periods. And it was during the second of those in the fall, October, really, of uh, 1968, that he was working on Maze of Death, and we had a we used to have these long conversations that would run up until one or two o'clock in the morning about all kinds of stuff. It was, it's so we're college roommates, you know, just right. talking about the wonders of the universe, the mysteries of, of uh, creation, all that sort of stuff. And it was, uh, uh, it was just a lot of fun. I didn't realize he was turning it all into a book. <laughs> until <laughs> right. he, Till he uh, contacted me that December and said, you know, I'm giving you credit for uh, what you've, uh, our discussion that helped inspire some of the, our, we had a theological discussion about the nature of God, starting with uh, fundamental principles, uh, the, like basically what you need in order to postulate a God and what would such a God be like. And it evolved in his mind into uh, this sort of uh, a much more elaborate understanding which is present in uh, maze of death that has elements gnostic elements as well as christian elements in it um, then the book itself was published uh in 1970 mm. and uh i stayed in touch with him in fact i visited uh phil and tessa i think it was 1976 and uh stayed with them for a few days and periodically whenever i was in california I would stop by and visit Phil. We had conversations over the phone. We exchanged mail, emails, or snail mails, rather, in those days. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I you know, stayed friends with him up until the time of his death. Right. And it's got to be interesting because, you know, I know lots of authors, too, being a writer myself. And, and I, I know how... I can see a lot of my friends in the books that I read when I read them. So I'm sure it's a very different experience for you reading Philip K. Dick than it is for us, for both you and Tessa and, um, but especially maze of death. And so I'm excited once we get into this bill to get more of your thoughts on, on specifically these things, but uh, we'll come back to you. Ted, um, you know, you're more like me. You, you came up as a fan. Um, I know you said um, you were two years old when Phil, when Phil passed. I was six. So we're from a much younger generation who um, 
met Phil through the books. And I'm assuming it was a book that you read first. How did you first get introduced to Phil? My first book is um, Eye in the Sky, which to this day I, I still consider to be like the paradigmatic PKD novel. Like, you know, if you want one that is the most exemplary of his uh, his weird style or something, you might point to that one. Um, I I'm had, a huge uh, Eye in the Sky fan, by the way. Like, <laughs> so It's the multiple perspective narrative uh, par excellence. Um, so I, I think it's his uh, first masterpiece, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, arguably. Um, uh or is it TOJ? I um I was uh I was a kid in the 90s. I was a teenager um on the cusp of Gen X. My older cousin, who was decidedly Gen X, like was this kind of punk rock hipster type. And he was reading PKD as sort of like being part of that like hipster scene. Like, you know, you're reading like Maximum Rock and Roll magazine and going to Sonic Youth concerts. And uh, you know, Sonic Youth, of course, were big fans of PKD. Maybe that was how he heard of them. And I remember his uh, girlfriend at the time was reading when I was like 17, 16 and visited him. And his girlfriend was reading the, the Lawrence Sutton uh, Divine Invasions biography of, uh, of Phil Dick. And, uh, you know, which I imagine must be close at hand. So I was just ready for you to yeah. hold that up. And, <laughs> I always um, have it beside me when I'm work doing a podcast. So just in case. I was like, you know, I was 16 years old, you know, I was like, why would you be reading the biography of the author instead of his books, right? And, you know, get to college, come to find out, you know, the biography, as Robert Ant Wilson said, is more exciting than a spy novel, you know, <laughs> if, you're, uh, if you're interested in these uh, theological twists and turns that we've come to discuss. And so um, I had a, a rash of synchronicities, you know, surrounding Phil Dick, you know, a bunch of my... Uh, you know, a bunch of my friends are getting into him and uh, it was just sort of like in vogue in the counterculture. Right. And um, but also I'm interested in how Phil was also an influence in the sort of off culture, you know, the occult, um, uh, the cultic milieu, as, as other people put it in, in the, the Western esoteric tradition. A lot of people who are into like Rosicrucianism or whatever, um, you know, might have been inspired by Phil Dick to go down a, a more mystical path. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, um, we'll get more into your story with this as we go on, but um, I'm sure it'll leak in. And I've mentioned this on the podcast many times before, but uh, I was actually born in March of 1974. So right at the, uh, <laughs> as you said, Ted, I've got Vallis in my rising sign. So, like <laughs> yeah, March 19th, 1974. So I was right when I read Divine Invasions and I read that I was, of course, immediately said, I don't know what a podcast is, but one day I'll do a Philip K. Dick podcast. So, um, uh, but yeah, so I've always had a real interest in the Vallis thing and, and what went on. And I try not to cast judgment on what I think happened or didn't happen. Uh, I just, I'm going to take Phil at his word for, for the purposes of, of this podcast. And, uh, you know, I wasn't there like some of us that are here uh, um, or able to talk to him at the time. So that's why I gathered this panel, because, you know, it's it's I just think it's a really important thing to happen to Phil. So let's I, I, I'd like to next ask Bill and and Tessa both. But what was it like to hang out with? Phil, because I think a lot of us would like to know, starting with Bill, 
What was it like to just though you said it was like a college roommate, but what was it like to spend an evening just shooting the shit about the, the universe for Phil? Like, can you give us a glimpse of that? I know you kind of did a little bit, but for me, it was the most entertaining thing I could conceive of. <laughs> I mean, we would spend hours talking about his books. I'd ask points. I'd ask questions about particular books, themes, and uh, any any of his uh, ideas that particularly appealed to me, the origin of these and so forth. But we also got into, you know, I was a grad student in physics at the time, theoretical physics. So we got into discussions of physics, but I'd always been interested in philosophy and in theology as well. And Phil was a really a mentor to me as regards those. I learned an awful lot about Gnosticism afterwards, not really before that although I had some familiarity with the pre-Socratics, but it was, uh, I had just enough awareness to be able to tap into what he was talking about and ask the right kinds of questions. And it was kind of like bouncing ideas back and forth, like we'd excite or stimulate each other with some new mental construction that was enormously gratifying. Uh, that was the evenings. Uh, actually, it was pretty much during the day, too. But in the evenings, and things got really quiet. Uh, Issa was, um, I think she was around six months old at that time, his, his, uh, his daughter with Nancy. Uh, Nancy was very kind and helpful and facilitated, very sweet, really, facilitated everything for the stay. But the focus was on me and Phil until I drained him of as much insight <laughs> and knowledge as I possibly could. And even Thank then it wasn't that. enough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's cool because then now uh, we get to benefit from that and from your experience. And one thing I've known, I've noticed from interviewing, from interviewing, for example, Barry Maltzberg or Norman Spinrad yeah. is that they always mentioned Phil calling them in the middle of the night. Um, <laughs> so I, I imagine that he's up late and just has these thoughts. And then he's like, Oh wait, I gotta call Barry Maltzberg and tell him about right. such and such. And uh, so it was very funny to hear these stories. And Maltzberg, for example, didn't know Phil very well, but said that his only interactions with him were these like middle of the night calls. Yeah. And and so it's very funny to hear about that. Well, uh, this was kind of like a live-in middle of the night call. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Uh, Tessa, I'm sure you had to facilitate m more than one of those conversations or be part of those conversations um you know as a spiritual thinker yourself it, i'm sure you had a lot of fun with some of these visits um do you have any memories or anecdotes before we get into valis about some of these visits that that you had well, i remember passing out and sleeping on the couch while phil was still talking he could get by on very little sleep but i can't yeah. Well, I bet some of those conversations got into your brain other ways, too, though. That's great as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Go ahead. Shortly after his mystical experience, he was composing a novel about it. And in conversations with people who didn't know him so well, they assumed that he was talking about things that really happened to it. Mm. And more than one thought he was just nuts. But he he was really 
spinning out possible plots for a novel. And when he realized that they thought it was true, he just went with it, had fun with it. Mm, absolutely. And of course, people thought he was nuts. Well, let's, all right, let's get in. Let's, yeah, let's get into the Vallis incident and what was going on at that time. This was right before the release of Flow My Tears, uh, which came out later that year, I believe, or a little bit into the year. But Phil had only had one book released over that time period or for the during the four years that he kind of worked on and again, on again, off again on Flow My Tears with uh, We Can Build You. So I'm sure he was really excited or gearing up towards the release of, of Flow My Tears and and. I'm sure that was a very big deal, but it was a dental surgery that happened right before this. That was kind of like the kickoff of this. Um, so yeah. he, yeah, right. And so he was in pain and was waiting for this prescription. Does anybody want to jump in with their thoughts on, on this first inciting incident? Um, well, first of all, People thought he had not been writing for several years and that he'd burned his brains out with drugs and couldn't write. But the fact is, he was writing. He just wasn't publishing. It takes mm. at least a year to get a book out. And his books took two or three years. Mm -hmm. And when his house was broken into in San Rafael before I met him, his manuscripts were stolen. Mm -hmm. Well, and so, luckily... Fortunately, he had... Um, well, Roger Zelazny had the manus a copy of the manuscript for Deus Erie, and his divorce lawyer had a copy of the manuscript for Flow My Tears. Yeah, so, that's what I was about to say. Yeah, and... But there, there was a third novel that... He took both copies, and he just never tried to write it again. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. So uh, there he is, a total baby, wouldn't go to the dentist, finally was in so much pain, he went to the oral surgeon to have a bad tooth extracted. He called it a wisdom tooth, but it wasn't. It was a molar. Uh, right. Right. And so he so it's funny because that the, the toothache really kind of plays a role in, in yeah. this, too. Right. Um, he had a bad infection in his mouth. And after, before and after the surgery, he was in terrible pain. But Novocaine was wearing off when he got home. Hmm. Well, and that can. And we went by taxi, so we didn't take the taxi to the pharmacy. We had them deliver his pain medication. Mm, right. The golden fish pendant is a red herring. That's in the novel, not in real life. Okay, see, because that's that that is thought of to have been real life, but you're saying. The golden fish pendant was not a real thing. That was only in the in, in the novel. Well, she was wearing a fish pendant, and he did ask her about it. 
but it was when he turned around that this silvery sticker in our window caught the sunlight and temporarily blinded him. And that sticker, coincidentally, was the fish sign. So while he was temporarily blinded, he kept seeing the fish sign in pink letters. Mm. It's uh, phosphine activity. Common reaction to being blinded by a bright light. Mm. And he went into the bathroom and took two of the pain pills instead of one and went to lie down. They were a pretty powerful opioid called Perkadan. Right. So... How so? What I'm wondering too is how long after this first thing did did Phil start to talk about these ideas that or that something had happened to him? Was it right away? Yeah, see, he slept for a while because of the pain pills, and then he started talking that evening that he he was recovering memories that he had lost. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, Bill, in your experience, because we've heard a lot about Phil from in these situations where he's talking about certain books, for example, like Man in the High Castle and Time Out of Joint and Eventually Flow My Tears, is that with some of these books, he talks about these as as being re recurring memories or memories that he has of some other thing or some other universe or some other time or place. Is this, this, is this a discussion that you had with him ever um, in your experience? I did, but I don't recall the date. I'm not sure if it was before um, the, the Vallis event or not. I do mm-hmm. remember that we were talking about John Brunner, whom both of us had met at the 1968 World Science Fiction Convention in uh, Berkeley, and it was John Brunner who turned him on to the idea of anamnesis, recovery of lost memory, which is actually in the Plato's writing, I believe. Ted can uh, support that, I believe. Uh, so I don't recall. I can't be certain. I've got. I need some anamnesis myself here, so I can <laughs> reco- recover the memory of whether that was in '68 or a bit later. Uh, mm. But I do recall talking with him that it, I think it probably was later that John Brunner had sort of suggested this idea to him. Mm-hmm. And that's where he came up for. I also wanted to amplify what uh, Tessa had said before about the tooth extraction. He did receive a dose of sodium pentothal, which is uh, similar. It's, uh, it's a barbiturate that's uh, similar to uh, Amitol, loosely called truth serum. It's actually, it's used to elicit information from uh, like repressed memories or that sort of thing, or to force people to tell the truth is largely unfounded, largely spurious. Mm. It, may, it may have been experimented with in the early 50s by, uh, you know, CIA or whatever. However, uh, it is known to be a central nervous system depressant. And that when it wore off, which it wears off fairly quickly, the rebound from that may have flipped him from a depressed into a manic state. 
also the pain played a role in all of that as well. So uh, he was sort of primed. Uh, I think he was primed physiologically and psychologically. I mean, he'd had, uh, he would have what I would say is manic depressive illness, not necessarily manic depressive psychosis. That's a whole separate subject to, we could talk about, but this isn't the place for it. But a lot of the time he spent being depressed, but he could go into these manic or hypomanic uh, periods. And one of them could very well have been triggered off by the events of the surgery, the pain, the pentothal wearing off, who knows, the opioids and the rest of it. Um, I can also give additional context. I mean, what I'd, what I'd like to say is uh, I want to contextualize his experiences sure. as relatively common spiritual experiences, especially among spiritual seekers, which he certainly was, rather than as a mental aberration or, or a, a signifier of psychosis. I, I don't think he was psychotic, although he veered close to the edge at times. So he was deeply neurotic, and that has to do with circumstances having to do with his upbringing that uh, we did not get into right here. But to me, the revelations that he received during the Vallis experience were what I would call spiritual emergences or emergencies. Where, and that's something that most people who um, study PKD don't really have a handle on because they're either too materialistic or they don't lack any direct spiritual awareness of, of such phenomena. Uh, I think that the closest someone has come to um, describing what went on to Phil spiritually is Kyle Arnold, who wrote the book, uh, The Divine Magnus, Magnus uh, Philip K. Dick, which you may be familiar with. Mm. It's, it's good in some regards. Um, I, I like it, but he doesn't, uh, he goes, he basically says, he ascribes um, uh, Phil's behavior in part to his uh, amphetamine psychosis. I wouldn't call it that. He was certainly habituated to amphetamines at a certain point. It helped him with his asthma, benzodrine in particular, and later it helped him write at a prodigious pace when he needed to support <laughs> the succession of wives and family. But he was off that. 1964, I think, all the novels. The craziest period was right around 1964 when he was running around Berkeley with his friend J.K. Newcomb with guns and leaving what buckets of diapers on uh, porch was that? Grania's porch? I don't remember the whole story. Anyway, (laughs) he he was a a bit nuttier nuttier at those points, but he cleaned cleaned himself out to a large extent. And, you know, I don't think he was... uh, psychotic at all um no he never took meth in the whole time i knew him 72 till his death 10 years later yeah i think people have a misunderstanding that yeah that they think that he was heavily using during this period and and he wasn't and and that was you know i mean (laughs) I think some people have the misunderstanding that they think he was heavily using basically until the end. And, and so it's really important to clarify, you know, the record on that for specifically, because I think the Dallas incident for, for that, Ted, you had a comment. However, uh, and I do agree, you know, that the, the, the drug thing is overblown. I would love to ask Tessa one anecdote. Um, there is a moment in the selected letters around this period uh, or a little later 
where uh, Phil was uh, was high on some marijuana. He said a friend uh, left a joint. I forget who he was writing the letter to. And uh, he called Tessa up and he said, you know, my uh, I'm open to the collective unconscious. Ask me anything. And so, Tessa, do you remember that conversation and what you guys talked about? No. <laughs> Are you sure I'm the one he called? Yeah, it's in yeah. one of the letters somewhere. He was he was high and he asked you to access the Jungian collective unconscious by asking him anything. Well, as one does. As uh, one you know. does. <laughs> wow. Well, that would have been probably around 1980. Do you know the date of the letter? That sounds right. It sounds like around that time. I mean, he called me often, but I don't remember any specific conversation. Mm. Yeah, probably I'm, sure, asked I'm sure you got those calls like, a lot. <laughs> I probably asked him, what is the meaning of life? Because he was always asking people that exact question. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we have a scoop here, I think. I don't know if this has ever been discussed, but one other PKD and drug story that we were talking about uh, before we got started, and Tessa said there's no third rails here, so I hope it's fair game that I asked. But, uh, Tessa, you've told me that right before he died, Phil called you about a week before and said that he had gotten some cocaine. Well, actually, I was there at his apartment with, with our son when he said that, and I advised him strongly to get rid of it because it would kill him. He had high blood pressure and he wouldn't take his meds for that. Hmm. I don't know whether he ever used it. Well, but, um, uh, I hope he didn't. Yeah, that's, that's interesting to think about. And I'm sorry about the dog fight people. Uh, <laughs> it's well, likely. And, uh, his neighbors next door confirmed that he did have the cocaine. Hmm. Hmm. I agree. Would have been hard. Yeah. Go, Go ahead, ahead Bill. Bill. I agree. It would have been really harmful for him to use it. And in fact, his death may have been his premature death may have been precipitated in part by his previous amphetamine abuse, which has similar effects on the cardiovascular well, system. Also being born premature, he was under three pounds when he was born, and they did not expect him to live. Hmm. That will make you die young. Yeah. All right. Well, that's heavy stuff, and I, I'd like to yeah. – I, I understand why we want to talk about it, but I want to get back to the Vallis thing. So um, to what we're – 1974. <laughs> um, so in 1974, too, like after, I think a lot of times he obviously invented the fish pendant or gave more credence to the fish pendant in the novel. Um, Ted, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts to why that was so important for him to put more importance of it in the fictionalized version of the events than maybe than it actually was in reality. So, you know, 
I've had a lot of conversations with Gil about, uh, you know, what was Phil doing here with all of this? Why was he spinning out these stories, right? We know that he was a, a an inveterate bullshitter, right? He loved to sort of just make stuff up. He loved to put people on. He loved to kind of like pray right. with pranks. And, you know, you know, Tessa says people thought he was crazy, but was he just putting them on? Was he kind of enjoying seeing how far he could go? Uh, with it. And, um, you know, another um, theory that that uh, Dave Gill um, thinks about a lot is Freud's theory of, of narcissism. Like, did it make Phil feel important that he was coming up with these theological uh, discoveries? Now, I'm inclined to believe that he had some serious, uh, there was some reality to these mystical experiences. And even if he wasn't, um, you know, always telling the truth about something that happened to him, there's some truth there. Um, he's, you know, he's, there's a reason why he's fictionalizing the experiences, um, in the way that, that he does. And so, um, another thing I'd love to get Tessa on the record talking about, which may be a good segue, um, I hope it doesn't get us too far afield is the diagnosis of his son, Christopher's, um, was it an inguinal hernia? Uh, there was some kind of a, a medical ailment and, and I think Tessa has, has debunked this and Dave Gill really wants to know, um, what's the story with diagnosing Christopher's inguinal hernia? Was this really like a mystical revelation of information or uh, did he fictionalize that too? He exaggerated and embellished, but it did happen. Our son had an inguinal hernia. We didn't know that. But Phil was taking a nap, which he did quite often. Turns out he... he he said he had the flu and people thought he was just hiding, but he had a condition that made him feel ill. Uh, anyway, he got up from his nap and he appeared to be in a hypnotic state. Very robot-like in his motions and his speech was very atonal and flat. But he just said, call the doctor and tell him, well, we called him Dr. Quack, by the way. <laughs> call Dr. Quack and tell him that our son has an inguinal hernia. So I did, made an appointment, no rushing to the emergency room, none of that. And the doctor examined our son and referred us to a specialist, a surgeon. So we went to the surgeon and he confirmed the diagnosis and said, well, he, he's too young to have the surgery. So don't let him cry for four months. Ow. No crying, huh? No crying. He could cause the hernia to strangulate and kill him. We had one spoiled baby. Well, and I that, had that's no some sleep. pressure too for parents like for four months I had no sleep. <sighs> and how old was Christopher at the time? He would have been fourteen months old when it was diagnosed and eighteen months old when he had the surgery. Oh wow. Okay, very young. I thought he was older. That's interesting. No. Okay. But um, Phil did diagnose him for no particular reason. 
he said that our son was just babbling happily in his crib and Phil heard him saying the words of Christ on the cross. Of course, he wasn't saying that. But from that, he, he just knew. But he was in some kind of a trance when he told me. Hmm. Okay, so, all right, Ted, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to circle back, though. On the fish pendant, do you think, I mean, a lot of people who come from secular backgrounds don't even know what the fish pendant is. And I do think he chose it or chose to emphasize it for a reason, but I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on, on, on exactly why that is? I, I like the tangent we went on, but I do want to. Throw one, one thought that occurs to me in terms of like the rhetoric of this choice, right? Is that, I mean, the fish pendant is like obscure if you're, you're not, you know, familiar with, with Christianity too much. Right. But right. it's actually pretty square of a signifier um, you know, it's, um, I think about like how it's like a bumper sticker sort of a thing, right? Like it's, it's kind of all over the place. It's not too challenging. It's not like a weird Gnostic thing. Right. And so he's trying to sell his revelation. Um, you know, he's not like Alistair Crowley, like sex magic and drugs and, you know, all of this crazy occult stuff. Like he's still like this pious Episcopalian having long one-on-one -on -one conversations with his priest you know, and he kind of like, he wants to be this, this kind of nice domestic, you know, like bookish Christian type, you know, he's not the most wild eyed of mystics. And so uh, I'm really interested in how the choice of the, you know, the fish symbol is something that is kind of like, um, it's kind of innocent, it's wholesome, you know, and, uh, um, it, it, but it's also part of the, the diagram of the Gnostics that supposedly made the DNA chain, you know, using the, uh, the, the fish, the fish symbol, like the geometry of the fish symbol itself, which I haven't come up with any like evidential basis for that being a thing. I'd be really interested to know if there's like a Gnosticism researcher who knows anything more about that like practice. Right. But supposedly it was like you would draw the fish symbol and then your friend would like draw the rest of the symbol. And that was how that they, they uh, in the Gnostic underground society that they would like reveal themselves to each other as, as believers in the esoteric uh, cult. So you know, the, the fish symbol might be a way of him sneaking a little bit of esotericism into an otherwise uh, kind of wholesome uh, Christian symbol. Right. Well, he chose the necklace rather than our bumper sticker, which he had taped in our window, because he wanted to associate it with the character of Sophia in the Dallas novel. Mm. especially Radio Free Album, which was actually the first one that he wrote. His agent and his editor kept rejecting them, said they couldn't sell that stuff. So right. um, he had to die to get his novels published. Actually, after the Blade Runner film, they, he could have copied the phone book and sold that. <laughs> Right, kind of right. like, um, I just blanked on his name, Breakfast of Champions, right Her after. Vonnegut. Her Vonnegut, yeah. Yeah, right after his movie, Slaughterhouse-Five. Right. Well, uh, so 
there was this initial day that, uh, but the Vallis incident really takes place over several weeks, uh, right? And there, there's, I wonder what we could go through with what happened over those weeks and what that time was like, Tessa, and maybe Bill, if it, did you? Try months. What's that, Tessa? Months and years. Months and years, I know. But those first couple of weeks, I think, are yeah. really, really, really important. Do you have any, I mean, you've got to have distinct memories, Tessa, of that time. Was How, how much was he, was this internal or was he talking to you about it? Oh, he like, was always talking. Right. Even before that. Mm-hmm. So he was openly telling you, like, hey, something's going on with me. I'm having something. There's something happening at the time. Was he? Yes. Um, I had enough weird experiences of my own to take him seriously. But he, he went off the rails sometimes, and I knew that was fiction. Right. When I report about his experiences in my books, I feel obligated to record what he actually said and did. Mm-hmm. But he did make stuff up. <laughs> However, right. um, back to anamnesis, which in Greek philosophy actually happens when you die. You drink from the... Uh, river of forgetfulness to forget your earthly life and then you drink from the fountain of anamnesis to remember your spiritual life and he thought he was doing that but he recovered a memory of his time in Canada in British Columbia he had fled to Vancouver where he was a guest of honor at a convention and he decided to stay because someone was gang stalking him down in California. He never and, knew who. Right. And, and during that time in Canada, he, we know that he had suicidal ideation as well. And no, 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 no. He is that not remembered. true? Okay. He had a headache and was headed to the pharmacy to get some aspirin. And two mm. men in black suits grabbed him and shoved him into the back of a black limousine and drove him around for a while and told him to kill himself. He was never seriously suicidal. His, his attempts were cries for help, and they were, he was never in danger of dying from what he did. Mm. Okay. Well, that's, yeah, that's definitely the way that it's kind of reported often. So it's good to get clarification on that. This one came close. He took a whole bottle of sleeping pills. And then he woke up looking at the empty bottle and the water glass and called for help. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Um, yeah, that would be scary to, to, to wake up that way. Um, well, so he... He had recalled memories of Canada. He started to, and we know that his speech in France in 77, he talked about these experiences where, uh, like, Thomas, the, the, the Roman character, and some of these other life, lifetimes that inspired, for example, Flow My, uh, you know, Flow My Tears and some of these experiences where he imagined 
like for full before for my tears he imagined this other this other america and the second civil war and so we know that he had times like that so i think he had a basis for this of these recalled memories it wasn't the first time that he felt like this was happening but this was different why do you think bill as as his friend why do you think this was different from the recalled memories that he had experienced in the past what what made this one different from those if you're speaking of the recall, recalled memories in his Vallis experience, um, mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not sure they were recalled memories. That's how he represented them. Uh, I, I do want to say just really briefly, because this is a subject that I could go into too much detail on, mm -hmm. but there are a set of psychological traits that are common among people, among spiritual seekers. Uh, these have been analyzed by uh, psychologists, parapsychologists in particular. And Phil fits the description perfectly. It's like a glove fitting on a hand. Uh, and one of them is schizotypy, not schizophrenia, which is at the far end of the schizotypal uh, spectrum. But the near end, I mean, uh, he, what, there's a tendency to be very creative, which he certainly was, and to confabulate, to invent things because that's just the way his mind works. So he would take anything and interpret it in a way that, uh, that acquired more meaning for him. And schizotype is just one of the features. The others, have, these four are all related. There's apophenia, which is the tendency to find meaning in random events. And of course, anybody who uses the Yi Jing or the tarot or astrology is basically doing something similar but he would find meaning in synchronistic events happening he'd find meaningful coincidences it's all about putting meaning on things that he was very adept at another is uh, transliminality in which uh, the um, information from the environment or from the subconscious can penetrate through into the consciousness and the, the last one is temporal lobe lability, not temporal lobe epilepsy, which is what some people have claimed he suffered from. That's not true any more than to say he was schizophrenic. But again, that's a spectrum, like schizotypy is a spectrum. And there are people who are advanced meditators and sincerely, deeply religious people whose brains will exhibit micro seizures in the temporal lobes, not epileptic fits, but a kind of seizure that you see even in advanced meditators. Uh, and there are certain indications. Uh, I've, I've seen checklists of questionnaires <laughs> with uh, the kinds of things like uh, uh, such phenomena, uh, like I, have you ever experienced a, uh, a numinous presence, presence of another, uh, and so forth and so on. There's, there's a whole series of these things that fit him very, very closely. So I'm just saying that this tendency of his, a series of traits, not, uh, not psychotic, uh, not even, it's not, it's not, we're not even talking neurosis, although some of these, in severe cases, you could say these would be, uh, you could have, for example, there is a schizotypal personality disorder which is close to schizophrenia. That's not what he had, in my opinion. I'm not a psychiatrist. But I think there is a, a, a trend 
there's a tendency for him to make stuff up, to embellish what actually happens to him, to find or create meaning for it in a way that, um, that validates his experiences and his thoughts. And you can say that his mind was perfectly programmed because of his background in theology and philosophy to interpret everything that was happening to him in that context. Well, because one other thing, too, to remember is he was also just a storyteller. He liked he was a writer. And so, you know, if he's just because he's a storyteller doesn't mean he can't have spiritual thoughts right. as well. And it's going to come out in a, a blend because that's right, who he right. was as a person. Well, he was a writer because he was so creative because of all these other exactly. factors. And I that meant he nailed it. Hmm? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Can I break in with one thing. Um, there's a theory that uh, Kim Stanley Robinson brought to my attention. Um, so I, you know, I agree that Dick's uh, experiences were regular spiritual experiences, right? And he fits this type. One thing we do have to explain, though, is why did he write 9,000 pages of exegesis? And um, uh, Stan Robinson... We're going to get there. We're going to get um, there. <laughs> Stan Robinson said, in connection with the theory that uh, uh, Bill brought up about temporal lobe liability or epilepsy, is that those conditions are sometimes associated with what's called graphomania, or, where okay. you do uh, an intense amount of writing. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'd love to hear more of Bill's thoughts on Phil's graphomania. We'll, we'll get to the exegesis. Trust me. Before uh, that, Phil wrote tons and tons of letters and so forth. He used to say, wind me up, and I write. Well, and this year, 1974, was a banner year for letters, more so than his fiction. Mm -hmm. He wrote, we, you know, I've got two books of a shelf of letters from 1974 and, and an index. I mean, like one of the greatest things that we're given to understand this year in Phil's life is the fact that he wrote a ton of letters and he reached out to people. Bill, did you talk to Phil during this period? Did you, or was it, because I, I know you talked to him off and on throughout that time, but yeah. did you have any direct experience with this, the, these early days of the Vallis? thing he didn't tell me about Vallis. i mean we were in touch but he didn't tell me about it even in 1976 when i saw when i stayed with him in tessa uh, i didn't really hear more about it i mean he alluded to it but it wasn't directly i didn't hear more about it until uh 77 mm. or thereabouts 77 yeah. 78 um he was still keeping it a little bit close to his vests let's put it that way um, well, and so I want to talk to you about, um, I hate to totally drill down on these tiny little details, but listen, yeah. like, like we joke about the, the pink laser beam on our show and, right. and, and, and it's become a thing that, you know, the, the pink laser beam of truth and, and, and all that. But I want to talk about like what, how much of that, cause we've, Tessa, you've, shown that the pendant is more fiction than it is reality where does the the pink beam and 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 that stand on the reality versus the fiction of it like was where did the pink laser beam come from is what i'm wondering 
It was the beam of light reflected yeah. from that window sticker. I've got to take a quick break. I'm drinking yeah. too much coffee. All right, take let's pause. Back. So, Bill, you wanted to to get into the into the pink laser beam stuff and um, and give some insight that you recently got. Yeah. So, tell tell us what what well, you got. Look, it's throughout history, uh, divine light has been associated, physical light has been associated with divine light, illumination, enlightenment, and so forth. So something like the pink laser beam is just another expression of that same theme. Uh, and there are, events, there are uh, events that have occurred throughout history with people who have been struck by sudden experiences that have been transformative. Uh, you know, one prime example is uh, the apostle Paul, when he was still Saul on his way to Damascus and having a conversion experience that some people have claimed, well, he must've been temporal lobe epileptic. No, he was just having a, an experience of spiritual light. Or as uh, Ted can talk about, uh, Jakob Burma looking at, I think it was a pewter, was it a pewter dish, Ted? Uh, that the light of that inspired uh, an ongoing process of spiritual examination that went on for years, I believe. Mm. Uh, and others throughout history, I mean, this is not an uncommon event. In fact, scientists have speculated that, uh, that in fact, there are phenomena, there are uh, such as biophotons, biologically induced uh, photon emission that can occur in living tissue, people have actually measured this in the human brain. It may be that our brains actually use not just electrical impulses, but light to communicate with. But beyond that, there have been some specific incidents uh, that have occurred where people have had experiences. Uh, one of them famously happened to John Lilly. John Lilly was the uh, uh, psychonaut call him that, and dolphin ex communicator and inventor of the isolation tank who experimented with uh, psychedelics later in his life and ultimately with ketamine, which he found was able to cure his uh, migraine headaches. Uh, he began becoming aware of uh, extraterrestrial entities, one of them he called ECHO, which is Earth Coincidence Control Office, ECCO, which again has to do with how these, this benign alien intelligence was communicating with people on Earth through spontaneous uh, synchronicities, which is very much in the, the Phil Dickian mode, you know, the, and then the, uh, another entity called SSI, which he called Solid State Intelligence, which was rather similar to, to Vallis. Uh, it was, uh, unlike Vallis, however, it was not benevolent. It was malevolent. So about six months after Phil's pig laser beam event, Lily had a similar experience. He was flying into LAX, and he saw the comet Kahutek, which seemed to him to grow brighter through the plane window. At that point, he claimed a message was laser beamed into his mind, which said, we are solid state intelligence and we're gonna demonstrate our power by shutting down all solid state equipment to LAX. 
A few minutes later, the pilot told the passengers that the plane was being diverted to Burbank because another plane had crash landed near LAX and caused a power failure. <laughs> so it seemed like yeah, he somewhere somehow he got a message from somewhere and he described it as kind of what you might call a psychic impression. And he described it in terms of a laser beam. And subsequently, Lily also had apocalyptic visions from Echo, warning of imminent danger to the survival of humanity, primarily coming from nuclear events, nuclear annihilation, which remarkably resembled those described in Phil's famous Tagore letter of 1981, written almost exactly seven years after Lily's experience. So there are some interesting points of contact. There is one other one that's kind of mind-blowing, and uh, that has to do with David Koresh. Now, you all know who David Koresh is, the siege yeah. at Waco. Well, I hadn't known about this until recently when I heard from Will Morgan, who some of us know as a uh, PKD fan. He's on the fan group, and he's a PKD researcher who's looked into this and found evidence from the FBI files on Koresh and also from a documentary called Waco, uh, Messiah or Madman or Messiah, in which Koresh says that God had computers and an advanced civilization beamed the key to the book of Revelations into his head with a laser. Uh, wow. I had the, yeah. yeah, I had not heard that. But Yeah, yeah, it's, you really have to dig to find out about it, but I have copies of... Uh, some of the uh, some of the material, uh, courtesy of Will, uh, there, there could be a lot more that could be researched into it. I don't want to talk about this too much, uh, especially because I don't have the full set of details. It really requires a lot of uh, uh, looking through the FBI files. Can I but, uh, jump in with a note on uh, Jakob Burma that gets us back to Phil and uh, and the Vallis, uh, the pink beam thing? Um, when uh, so Jakob Berman and his experience with the glint of light on the uh, pewter cup might be a direct influence on the choice yes. that Phil made uh, to depict the uh, fish story the way that he did, right? Um, and it's interesting because sometimes, you know, when he's writing about Burma and the exegesis, he's like, I'm only just discovering this. And it turns out that Jakob Berman is like so similar to my ideas but he already knew about Jakob Burma, and this wasn't his first time. Uh, this is something Eric Davis has, has talked about a bit. We've had conversations with him about this. Um, I think Bill, uh, you and I have talked about this a bit, right? You know, where he's sort of like, he's discovering things that it seems like he forgot, because if you go back and see that he was writing about it before, you know, he's like rediscovering things as if he hadn't already written about it. And Jakob Burma's like implicated in that. But I wonder if Burma goes all the way back to uh, Mr. Tagomi's vision in Man in the High Castle. Mm. That's that's interesting. Yeah, very yeah, interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. The, the piece of jewelry from Ed Frank Jewelers holding in his hand, glinting in the light, is an is early precursor to the, uh, to the fish pendant in a similar way to stimulate awareness of an alternative reality, put it that way. Really good point, Ted. Yeah. So well, which a lot of times in Burma, you know, all the way back. Well, and people think yeah. that the jewelry has more to do with the fact that Phil had and Nancy had the jewelry business at the time. Yeah. It was Anne. Anne, uh, Anne yeah. sorry. Yeah. yeah. And then so they had this jewelry business. And so a lot of people thought that the jewelry had to do with that. But it's interesting to see it from another source. Wow. 
Oh, yeah. Anne, Anne wanted him to give up writing and just work in the jewelry business. Well, we're glad he didn't uh, listen to that. Um. <laughs> yeah, well, getting back to his vision of a second civil war, mm -hmm. considering the state of things right now, it might have been prophetic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, that still remains to be seen, doesn't it? Um, and and that's the thing is it's still a continuum like what Phil got right and what Phil got wrong where it's you know not over yet so um, so as far as okay so Valus as a vast active intelligence system right how much of that is purely invention of the novel and how much of that is something that Phil saw as as reality um anybody can answer that i know that's a hard question but and i think i know what the answer is but for the <laughs> listeners <laughs> well he did at one point believe that he was communicating with an artificial intelligence on a satellite with a computer computers were like they existed in the 70s but nobody had one yeah, they weren't around all the time or in your well, They took in, up at least the whole floor of an office building. <laughs> right. Yeah. But um, gee, he saw himself kind of as Paul on the road of Dam to Damascus. Well, Saul yeah. on the road becoming Paul after he's struck by this vision that mm -hmm. blinds him and, and he's cured by a Christian and it's his job to kill the Christians so he's got a problem right and so and somebody one of our uh, listeners wanted me to ask if anybody thought that Phil believed that Vallis or that satellite had been there communicating visions for for thousands of years <laughs> to other spiritual mystics along the way and I didn't have the answer to that, but does anybody think that, I mean, with Paul being on the road to Damascus, is that, to Phil, was the idea that Vallis was providing those visions as far back then or in, in, in orbit? Did he have any thoughts on that? Does anybody know? Well, it could be. We had never heard of the Black Knight satellite back then, mm. but mm. perhaps, at least to his mind, it was a real thing, an ancient satellite mm -hmm. that we didn't send up somebody else did <laughs> yeah i think the the uh the whole the ai voice and especially his identification of it with sophia is really a key to understanding a lot of his experience it's very gnostic and mm -hmm. i think that's uh, you know as a source of um you know, the divine syzygy he talks about between Christ and between Sophia, Sophia who fell to earth. Um, but Phil didn't is, make a very good Gnostic. <laughs> and he thought God would intervene, and that's uh, completely the opposite of Gnosticism. Right, and maybe for people who are more secular, Ted, can you give a, a basic understanding of what, it, what Gnosticism means? like you know for our secular listeners 
Sure. So Gnosticism was a, uh, a variant of Christianity in the early centuries of the of the Christian era. Um, so in the, in the years like 100 to 300 uh, AD, uh, it flourished in various forms. Um, so I'm not sure if I if I can agree that uh, that they all would say that God doesn't intervene. That might have been one version, but there's there's many versions of Gnosticism. There's a book uh, called Rethinking Gnosticism that sort of challenges the idea that there is sort of one umbrella category that really covers all these different groups. Uh, but basically, you know, this uh, the there's this one group of Christians that called themselves Gnostics. Uh, who had the, these ideas about a demiurge that created the universe, but it's not the real God. And it's this kind of blind idiot God. It's kind of Lovecraft, you know, like thinks it's the real God is like creating this universe out of error. And um, uh, Sophia comes into the Gnostic myth where Sophia was uh, sort of like um, prostituting herself in order to like make a kind of creation that wasn't allowed. And um, uh, so like the idea the basic idea in Phil Dick of reality breakdown is extremely resonant with Gnosticism. Uh, Eric Davis has written a really great paper on the hem of a pearl and, uh, and Phil Dick that I recommend, you know, checking out. He's got this whole interest in kind of like signal processing and cybernetics and all that, um, where like in the hem of the pearl, there's this guy who forgets, and here we are back to anamnesis, right? He forgets his identity as a prince when he goes down into Egypt and puts on their clothes, but then the hymn of the pearl is like this, uh, this message that helps him to like, remember his identity as like, uh, you know, a spiritual being or, or whatever, having come from the other kingdom. Uh, so, so Gnosticism is, uh, and, and, and Dick wrote a, uh, a very, you know, interesting and uh, emblematic uh, kind of like principles of Gnosticism document. That's like a one pager you can read to get uh, Phil's take on Gnosticism, but but generally, you know, he was um, he was hip to what was happening in uh, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Nag Hammadi. Um, he he was hip uh, to a lot of like what was happening in in um, in scholarship in Gnosticism, and uh, and and kind of writing relatively um, well informed uh, takes on it at the time. So Phil, so it actually goes back further than Christianity. Phil got many of his ideas from Epicurus, who influenced the Jewish writers of the intertestamental period before Christ. Hmm. And so Gnosticism has its roots there, but of course, those people didn't call themselves Gnostics because it was an insult that was hurled at them. But that's really the roots of Gnosticism is between about 200 BC and 70 AD. And this is really resonant, this pre-Gnostic stuff um, or pre-Christian Gnostic stuff. There's a lot of it in middle Platonism. If you listen to the Secret yeah. History of Western Esotericism podcast, you can learn all about the connections between Gnosticism and, and, and Platonism, which um, is once again, you know, Dick was really deeply interested in Plato and the Platonic tradition. He gets into Neoplatonism. He starts to worry that he's going back to this pre-Christian magic that is like the, the Neoplatonic hermetic Gnostic kind of yeah. like milieu of the time. And, so, and Phil, Phil used to quote Epicurus, who was, I think he was before Plato, anyway, because Epicurus said moderation in all things. And Phil would say, no, that's immoderate. It should be moderation in most things. <laughs> right. Well, um, okay, so 
one of the things that Phil himself referred to this time as divine madness at, at one at one point. And how much do you think um, he he questioned his? I mean, I think he eventually came to uh, believing that he had a genuine spiritual uh, incident, but I do think that along the way he, he questioned what he was, you know, he questioned his sanity from time to time on these things. How often do you think that happened? Does anybody have any thoughts on that? Um, because I think it was it during this phase that, that he had himself institutionalized for a period. And I know, I've heard the story from Tim Powers about picking him up, which, you know, is a very funny story. But, but There's something uh, that Ann Dick said to Dave Gill, which is that uh, crazy people don't have a sense of humor about it, yeah. right? Yeah. They, they take their insanity seriously in a way that maybe Phil was, was a little bit lighter hearted about, you know, and in this, you know, the questioning of his sanity fits into the questioning of reality. It seems like, you know, seems like a rational response to having this kind of like manic depressive illness, this schizotypal, you know, kind of like thing going on. It seems like a rational response to that to question reality, right? Absolutely. And I'm, and I'm not judging or I'm not saying I agree with it, but I, but I just I know for from the stories that he, he must have had times where he thought to himself, well, well, wait a minute, this is too much. Or, or am I, you know, it would be natural for anyone to, that's really having a genuine spiritual revelation to wonder about it. And so I guess that's kind of what I was wondering. And, yeah, and if you read the exegesis, he goes to great length to kind of like try and attack um, although, you know, Gil might disagree, you know, Gil's going to say, look, you know, he sets up ballast so that he's trying to persuade you of the reality of these experiences. But I think we see Phil in doubting mode a lot in, in the exegesis. Yeah. Well, he, had, he had visions throughout his life. Yes. Yep, absolutely. The he most did. famous one being Palmer Eldridge. He looked toward the sunset and saw a Viking helmet, which the Vikings never wore, by the way. <laughs> some other group but he saw this horned helmet up in the sky right out of a Faustian legend or, or uh, an opera by Wagner but mm -hmm. even when he was a child he got lost once he was at day camp and got lost in the woods and he said a man took him by the hand and took him back to the group of children he was with and when he looked up to Thank the man. He was gone. Well, and just vanished and, and wasn't there. Right, and and so in the exogenous in doubting mode, he presents a couple ideas to uh, uh, himself. Uh, the idea that it could that maybe he's speaking to his lost sister at one point, or an, an alternate Phil, right? <laughs> that right. Another Phil communicating to him via Valis, right? Kind so, of like Doctor Who. <laughs> right, right. But it, I, I think it's important that people understand that that that's a part of the exogenous and that's exegesis and that's a part of the story that that Phil was at least questioning, you know, these things because I think yeah. people who are too rational, right? 
a lot of times are just they'll just write it off as saying he was nuts. And I think what you were saying, Ted, about that Ann said that, you know, him joking about it is is important. I'll, I'll go further. I'll say that, you know, he's doing a kind of a paranoid criticism. Hmm. I'd love to hear Bill's response to that. <laughs> paranoid criticism. That's a good one. Um, he was certainly not only capable of, but frequently given to self-examination, which I think is one of Phil's many savings points, one of his graces, that he was always able to, when confronted with an issue, took him a while sometimes, but he was always able to look at uh, what was going on and to come to terms with it or to find new meaning in it. Uh, I'm not sure how much paranoia would have to do with it, though. But I mean, in the sense of like Dolly and the surrealist, like doing a kind of like a, a paranoid critique of reality. Mm. Mm. I think it's a good point. Um, not sure how to respond to it, though. All right. So let's get into the exegesis here, too, because, Bill, you said something offline to me um, that I thought was really interesting, which was that you queued into the first 150 pages of the exegesis more so than the rest of it. And, and, and I want to right. talk about this process of him putting down these thoughts over several years, right? So we have the initial incident, and then in many ways, the Vallis incident lasts much longer into um, and affected his output as, as, as a writer, and it changed everything that he did as a writer after that. But what is it about the, those first 150 pages that you think, to, Bill, is so different? I think I can give a real perspective on this uh, and based on my own experience as well. So the, what I see is going on is that he has the spiritual revelation which is very intense and transformative. His life changes. He talks about his life being reorganized, reordered, you know, uh, paying off, uh, uh, arrange, clearing his debts, getting money from people who, who uh, owed him. And then he still is illuminated by that initial flash and wants to perpetuate it. So the, the part of the exegesis that's, let's say, roughly the first 150 pages is the part that's closest to his initial experience. And it's the part that retains the most of the intensity and purity of his original vision. After a while, that fades off, and he keeps trying to recapture it. That's what all the rest of the book is about. There are some brilliant insights in the rest of the book, but it's all about trying to recapitulate what he previously experienced. He wants that spiritual hit again, and he can't get it. And he mm. keeps going back and back and saying, aha, I have it. I've got the revelation. I have the understanding. And then, no, that's not what I meant at all. They look in the, mor at, in the morning at what he's written and say, no, this, is, this isn't it. He keeps missing the mark, but he keeps searching. Again, another one of his saving graces is that he keeps on looking but that got carried perhaps to too much an extent when he was trying to recreate the initial intensity of his spiritual vision. 
I can give a little perspective on this from a personal point of view if you want to hear it. Absolutely. It was about 19, it was, it was about a year after his death. It was around 82, 83 that I came home from a meditation retreat and I got hit in the head with three beams of white light. And I really perceived them as beams because they were very tightly focused like lasers coming from elsewhere in the universe. And I saw, I downloaded a whole lot of information. And to give you an example of what that looked like, I mean, one of them, one of these downloads, uh, at first I was seeing mathematical equations, equations from physics, because that was my field. That was what's in my consciousness, just like in Phil's consciousness was all this philosophy and theology. So what got excited was what I knew, just as what happened with Phil. Then the images of the the equations changed into pictures of Sanskrit letters and then into uh, other kinds of lettering, all sacred writing, Chinese, Japanese, Islamic, and eventually just the pure colors and forms. And I call it an info dump because I didn't realize at that time how much that was going to change my life. This was right. It was about a year or two after I'd had a, a spiritual awakening. I never got the chance to discuss my awakening with Phil because he died before we could, before I came back to California where I could discuss it with him. But it's something that happened to me around 81 and progressed through. And it's actually still ongoing. Um, and, you know, I, I've also managed to retain my sanity during all, almost all of it. So I've been able to integrate the experience. And again, it's a, it, this kind of experience is not that uncommon among other people. There are websites involving it, it descript, offering descriptions of people who have gone through um, awakenings of one kind or another, Kundalini experiences or whatever. In my case, uh, I'd had another, I was on the verge of spiritual discovery. I'd had another paper at 82 published in a scientific journal, paper in physics. And I knew my life was about to change. And that's when I went into, uh, uh, I studied channeling at one point, channeling, no, not entities, just my higher self. So I could get the uh, higher truth through and it, my life totally changed. At that point I became a healer and a biochemist and worked with a partner, developed new products, got a patent on one of them, started a corporation, all of this came from that initial flood of information. So, and I can well understand it, that first couple of years when it was so vivid, when I could do things right. like look, look at people and see brilliantly colored auras around them, or even see the electrical conduits in the walls, or access information psychically that I had no idea I could do, it was all sort of a game to me. I didn't realize it. it was kind of fun to play with. And it faded off after a while. And then I kept, oh, gee, how do I get back to that? Uh, but it, it didn't drive me into the kind of pr pursuit that Phil did. And I suspect that's because, as Ted mentioned, his hypergraphia or graphomania, uh, which was very strongly pronounced. I mean, he was a writer after all, but right. he just he just insisted he kept trying to process, process, process what he'd learned and to get back to that state. In my case, I went off in a different direction and just continued to uh, explore 
spiritual spirituality and and healing work. And it's uh, I'm still doing it to this very day. But it is possible to have that kind of experience and remain fully grounded and not be psychotic. And <laughs> right, I think, right. Absolutely. And, and I, I think that's true for Phil, too. I don't think he was psychotic. I think he had a big opening, which knocked him for a loop because he was deeply neurotic. But then he he, he retains some some contact with with reality as his friends like Tim Powers and Blaylock and uh, other people who knew him at that time will testify. He seemed perfectly normal. He would just stay up all night writing. That's all. I'd like to break in here with a $10 theology word, you know, popular in theological circles at the time was uh, the, the eclipse of God. Right. And, you know, as Bill was saying, you know, Phil's always like trying to get back these experiences where, you know, he's, he's no longer like feeling this divine presence. And he's like in this sort of dark night of the soul. And uh, so I think that the eclipse of God really conditions. So if we're trying to think about this, like doubting mode, you know, I mean, he's also in kind of like eclipse of God mode. Like, why is it like there's a theological significance to this absence? Mm -hmm. Good point. Well, uh, Tessa, I, I'm wondering, do while he was working on the exegesis, did, exegesis, did he ever have any intention of publishing it? What, what, what was his intentions in writing this? He wanted to turn it into an academic paper. He wanted very badly to be taken seriously by he, well, people in general and academics in particular. So what we call the exegesis is really just his notes and outlines, not a finished product. It's quite an outline. Yeah, right. Well, and at what point did he decide that, like, hey, I'm a science fiction writer. I can, I, I, I can, I can communicate these issues through the novel. And you said it was radio free that, that he attempted first, right? Right. And, and, and it's my favorite of the Dallas novels, even though it is not included in the Dallas trilogy. Because mm. nobody asked me when they decided that uh, uh, the transmigration of Timothy Archer should go into a trilogy. They just wanted a trilogy and they grabbed whatever they could. And so, but you think Radio Free, I think a lot of people, I think most people consider Radio Free to be connected to Vallis. So, like, yeah, it was anyway. originally titled Vallis. It was the first one. <clears throat> and actually, it's the most cogent of the three. Hmm. It has a plot you can follow and ideas you can understand. Right. And that is one of the ones that I read before starting the podcast <laughs> forever ago. Good, but, good for you. The movie's good, too. Yeah. I want your car chases and explosions because it's low budget, but it doesn't need them. No, no, of course it doesn't. But, um, and, and, and I will say that it's just from a perspective of, uh, you know, somebody who, who read those fictional or read I read Vallis and Radio Free back in the day and so my perspective on this is somebody who is waiting to read the exegesis for this podcast um 
you know, I've read bits and pieces through articles and excerpts and those kinds of things, but I've been kind of saving it and um, for, for this experience. And so what's interesting to me is that um, I, I more know it by reputation than I do having experienced it. But I feel like at the same time, you get a really good um, view into what happened to Phil by the fictional novels. And I, I do think that they do a good job uh, of doing that. But um, so. yeah. Of course, the published book is mostly his letters. Oh, uh, yeah. But you can access quite, I think, most of his handwritten notes at Zebrapedia. I think it's .edu. Well, there's a 6,000 page PDF of it that you can get. Where? And Ted, have you read the whole thing? Uh, I can't even make out, I, I'm not a paleography guy. I can't even make out the handwriting. But I believe there's a transcript. I have not oh. attempted the eye burning experience. However, Pamela Jackson has. Uh, you know, okay. she she's read the whole thing a couple of times. I mean, she read it on, on paper, right, uh, going through those yeah. folders. Uh, but there's a lot of people who are fan transcribing it. There's a bunch of exegesis experts out there that I'd love to get to know and hear more from. Um, yeah, uh, eventually transcripts, that'll be a of which have errors. <laughs> can we, before we move on, can I ask Tessa more about Phil's relationship to academia and his uh, his ambitions to turn the exegesis into more of a formal uh, paper because like I remember you know his experience in, at UC Berkeley was kind of a negative one and he's you know he's doing theology in a mode that is not necessarily it's like uh, Jeffrey Kripal the religious studies scholar who's interested in Dick would emphasize the extraordinary experience aspect right but um, you know I would I would uh, and, and somebody like Gabriel McKee is working on his more theological pretensions and I would say that, that Dick did want to be taken seriously as a theologian um, but but uh, but at the same time, he's he's also basing his theology on experience, which is kind of challenging and um, doesn't necessarily fit with the academic mode. So, Tessa, can you say more about about more about what Dick might have told you about his his feelings about academia? Well, first, he had a good relationship with Dr. McNally at Cal State Fullerton and with the lady who my I've forgotten her name, but she was in charge of the special collections where they had many of Phil's papers before his daughter sued them and demanded them to take them to Berkeley where no one ever looks at them. Uh, Gil does. <laughs> Good. Talk to Stephen Black at Berkeley about that if anyone's interested. Yeah. Now, you're, you're referring to Gil, who has a YouTube channel, Cardinal Sin? No, uh, D David Gill, the true... Oh, David uh, Gill. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. He's a professor there. Yeah, well, he's, I know he's gone to the that collection because he talked about it on our podcast about, like, having to go through the lawyers and everything. So it, it, yeah. it it's unfortunate the way that went down, but yes. Um, well... You know, his daughters never knew him. Issa spent some time with him here and there, but Laura didn't really remember him. She'd seen him when she was six years old, and then the second time she was 19. Anne was 
furious about keeping him away from his daughter, and he never knew why. Hmm. Well, <clears throat> it was some family drama that I don't want to go into right now. But anyway, Phil was often uh, told his opinions didn't count because he didn't have a college degree. It's kind of like um, the, the attitude of many scientists and doctors. Well, you didn't study this, so it doesn't matter what you think. Mm, right. So I went ahead and got my master's, but it's in English literature, so scientists don't listen to me either. <laughs> well, uh, I do think it's interesting that did he see this as some was he wanting to do this as a compact article or like, or just more like a book length thesis. Okay. Something like a PhD thesis. I do think that that gets lost for people that what he was writing was just the notes that he was <laughs> trying to compile for. And that would make sense too, that sometimes, and I know it, like I said, I haven't read the whole thing, but I've read bits and pieces of it that, that some of it is conversational in the tone where he's just kind of offhandedly mentioning earlier works and things like that. It's obvious he was not intending for that to, that he was speaking right. to himself. I know when I make notes for the podcast, a lot of times, you know, we, <laughs> we release those to our patrons and I a lot of times like, well, good luck trying to understand what my notes are saying because I, I'm just trying to clue myself in, hey, don't forget to ask Bill about this, right? But I don't, they don't necessarily make sense to anyone else, so I would think the ex exegesis is a lot of that, right? And so... Right. Well, but, I can read his handwriting, but it isn't... It's slow work. Right, right. But, you know, well, I, I have done a little transcribing on Zebrapedia, and I've tried to correct errors that other people made <clears throat> because his handwriting, he should have been a doctor. It's that bad. <laughs> Bill, you were, you had. I just say, I, I've had a lot of fun helping uh, Hélène Collin, who's the uh, French translator of the exegesis, work on her version <laughs> because we have to go back to the original and check. Uh, the spelling of certain words that didn't seem to make sense, and then look at the uh, at the copies in Zebrapedia to make sense. So, in a sense, the the most uh, accurate version of the exegesis is the one that's been published in French. Well, um, and that's fitting because of his relationship yeah. with France as well. Um, he got most of his income from French royalties. Yeah. I tried to learn French, and I can read it with a dictionary, but mm -hmm. I, it just isn't in my DNA. Well, so he continued to, obviously, he kept writing fiction, and there was a little bit of non-Vallis fiction after this. Was was Skinner Darkly written after the Vallis? No. No, it was before. Okay. He wrote that in 72. Gotcha. Okay, so um, I haven't gotten there yet with the podcast, so I don't... <laughs> um, I have read Skater Darkly just many years ago. Well, um, I think it was published in 76. It took that long. I think it was 77, but I, it could be wrong. But 
But as far as um, what his fiction after this point became much more optimistic in in a sense, and it kind of changed this whole his his tone changed fictionally. I'm wondering how did did Phil come off as a is a more optimistic person after this because the fiction definitely does in my opinion. The gang stalking, gang stalking came to an end, and when he was sure that it really had ended, he felt more secure. He had been followed, spied on, had his house torn apart several times. Mm-hmm. Well, and, the, the the Paul Williams uh, interviews definitely make that clear. Um, that yeah, I I met a lady who saw his house after the big break in mm-hmm. she confirmed it was really major it was not the work of one person gotcha and, um the according to phil the county sheriff told him he should leave town because he'd end up dead or worse yeah that's not what you want to hear from law enforcement uh, <laughs> i don't think no. you want to hear that yeah. So, but this period, though, with the writing, that everything became more. I, I think. But what I'm really trying to drill down on is: is did he feel more comfortable as a person, as a spiritual being, after the Vallas incident? Did did he? Because um, he was always a person that felt kind of off beat with the world, right? Like, and and that led to his agoraphobia in the early years and him not wanting to join writers groups and to, you know, when he was sending other writers to take his work to Tony Boucher and stuff like that. So do you think as his friends, Bill and Tessa, like as people who were close to him, do you feel that this freed him in in a way at all? Like this experience, Bill, let's start with you. I think to some extent it did. Um, he seemed happier in general, but there were definitely there were definite depressive moments. Uh, I visited him one time right after. Well, his mother uh, had died. He actually, in a kind of, as I recall, in kind of a parallel incident to his own death years later, uh, he had to be he had to be the one who decided to turn off life support for her. Uh, I think that was in 78. I'm not sure. And he just didn't even want to talk to me then, but uh, he relented after about a day. Uh, But, you know, there were isolated incidents like that. I mean, he was, he could still be prone to depression, but overall it seemed to me that the, uh, the tenor of his life was generally more uplifted and especially he was feeling uh, very positive about the advent of Blade Runner, at least having sold the material. He wasn't happy, as we know, when he saw the, uh, uh, when he found out what Ridley Scott wanted to do with the book, although he did love the, uh, the, the visuals that he saw. He said, uh, that's ex- you've captured exactly what was going on in my mind. Phil has a way of, of pleasing people anyway, telling them what he thinks they'd like to hear. But I think he was genuinely excited and happy about the novel. And it's ironic that his probably his happiest period of all came shortly before his death. But I, in general, I do agree. I think his life was more stable in the, uh, in the late 70s. 
except for isolated incidents that threw him for a loop like his mother's death. Right, right. Absolutely. All right. So um, I kept you guys for a while. So I want to try, try and um, I mean, obviously, we're all very excited about this topic. So I'm sure we could talk all day. Um, but I, I'm wondering overall, what are the biggest misconceptions that each of you want feel like people have for this time in Phil's life and for this incident that you would like to kind of correct the record on or, or what would you, what would you want people to come away from thinking about the Vallis incident and the, the, cause this is now a period we are entering in the podcast, right? Uh, on this podcast after flow my tears, you know, we're going to do crap artists next and, and then, um, pretty soon we're going to be full on into like Phil dealing with these issues through the books. So what do you think people need to understand as they, if they make this journey with us on the podcast over these next couple episodes of, of what was going on with Phil, the anyways, Tessa go. (laughs) Okay. I like to point out that Blade Runner reflects Phil's dark vision of the future, but Total Recall with Arnold Schwarzenegger, I haven't seen the new one. Mm -hmm. Total Recall captures his sense of humor, but Phil combined them. He had both in everything he wrote. He was an entertainer. Mm -hmm. And so he, he, even though he had a rather paranoid vision of global disaster he also had a sense of humor about it well his sense of humor is definitely what people miss um most of the time and in a lot of ways i think moon the 2009 movie the duncan jones movie is almost more i've been i'm tinkering with an article about moon being the most pkd movie ever made um (laughs) but uh it, it, in many senses, but uh, I shouldn't have given that away. Um, <laughs> but anyways. Yeah, also, I, I'm running out of chocolate. Oh, yeah. Well, we don't want that to happen here, Tessa. But so, so, but you, but specifically with the Vallis thing, is there anything that you think, personally, you think people just totally misunderstand? Well, I think the biggest thing is the conflation of his fiction with re- his real world experience. And he encouraged that. <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> yeah, he certainly did. Um, Ted. So, you know, I- I'd like to address the idea that the exegesis is not serious, that it's like whimsical or unhealthy or paranoid or druggy or crazy or, you know, all these things. And, you know, it is true that, you know, for example, I, I talked with Eric Davis about this one time. He says, you know, the unpublished exegesis stuff is often less worth reading, more depressing, more tinfoil hat, you know, paranoid stuff. Um, and, you know, Dave Gill is kind of along those lines too, thinks that it, it's kind of an unhealthy sign Right. Um, But I would I would agree more with uh, Bill that, you know, we see that Dick was happier, that doing this this practice was sort of helping him get stable. 
And, um, you know, Kripal talks in his notes on the exegesis about how it's kind of a, a religious practice of, of reading and writing. And, um, you know, one way to kind of test out uh, this, uh, or, you know, a, a popular theory is William James, who in the, the Varieties of Religious Experience said, well, the test of a religious experience is whether or not it produces a religious life. And uh, we do see that Dick became, you know, committed to this, this practice of doing serious research and writing um, on these theological ideas. And uh, one of the reasons I'm so excited about the esoteric stuff, especially his thoughts on these Renaissance magic guys, Giordano Bruno, Paracelsus, Jacob Burma, um, and others, is that um, he was anticipating uh, trends in the research that were to go on in, in later decades. Not only did he, exp uh, did he, did he um, kind of inspire a whole Gnostic revival, uh, but he anticipated a lot of the esoteric studies research that is finally happening in the academic world. It's finally kind of okay to study this material, uh, Rosicrucianism, Kabbalah, alchemy, um, and uh, it's, it's finally being taken seriously. So Dick uh, was ahead of the curve uh, taking this material seriously as an engaged theologian. Well, and I have a question for Tessa too, really quickly before we get Bill's thoughts. Um, and just on a personal level, as somebody who does the pod, who has been doing this podcast for a while, um, Gil, David Gill said to me one time um, that he th thought that Phil would have appreciated the people that took the piss out of him a little bit and had a sense of humor about him more than the people who, like, would have been like so serious and very academic about what he was writing because he kind of had a sense of humor about himself as a storyteller. And, and, and that made me feel better because at, at some points I felt like sometimes we, we joke a lot. We, you know, we take the piss out of, out of Phil a lot as a storyteller, just because that's what our role on the podcast. And I know like Frank Bertram is like, hates the fact that we, you know, take him, that, that you know he's like phil deserves better but i think he would have had a sense of humor about this stuff and i think he would have appreciated that tessa what do you think he would have laughed at pink beam memes yes i think he would have enjoyed it and maybe um put out a line of dallas costumes for halloween <laughs> right all right so bill you're gonna close this out with your uh your yeah. final Final well, thoughts like, and misconceptions of Valis. I agree with what everyone has said. You know, from from what I've said, basically, I think Phil needs to be taken seriously as a spiritual explorer, and that his his experiences were real and valid. He's also a prophet in a sense, and certainly, as Ted points out, he's uh, his writing is a precursor to a lot of modern investigation. In fact, you can say he stimulated it. I know he was a spiritual mentor for me, starting with Man in the High Castle, which introduced me to uh, to the Yi Jing as well, as well as a whole generation of people. But, uh, and that's, you know, the exegesis has got some deep spiritual investigations in it. I really think the first 150 pages or so are the, the best part of the book there's some dark stuff in it as well you know his paranoia not just what didn't get published uh as some of the repetitious or material or some of the paranoid material but you know his unfair treatment of uh, 
of uh, uh, Stanislav Lem or, uh, or uh, the Marxist critics Fitting and uh, Jamison uh, is really unfair and untoward. But, you know, that's part of who he was. He had this paranoid streak in him that, that was part of his, his uh, manic depressive disorder. Uh, and it came out occasionally. Um, what I do feel is, uh, I think we have to accept that along with the brilliance of the rest of his, his utterances, his career, his books. Um, so I want to close just with a, a brief anecdote. About six months after he died, I was visiting Paul Williams in California. I've reported this before. I was up in Glen Ellen. Paul, of course, was the uh, a longtime friend of mine from when we were basically teenagers together in Boston, and uh, he'd become the uh, the executor of Phil's estate. We both met Phil at the same time at Bacon in 1968. So I was having dinner with uh, Paul. Paul was cooking dinner and talking about uh, how Phil would be remembered, and uh, he said. Uh, that Phil would be remembered as a great science fiction writer. And I said that Phil would be remembered as a great spiritual teacher. And, you know, the fact is, I think both are true. It's just that most people aren't aware of that other dimension or haven't yet gone into that other dimension. But as Tom, as Ted points out, as time goes on, there are more and more people who are, who are uh, aware of this dimension of Phil's and of its importance. He was really a way shower a pathfinder uh, for a lot of people. Uh, so the, uh, the last little tidbit around that is that is, as Paul was uh, right after this discussion or in the middle of it, as Paul was cooking dinner, he was unwrapping a stock of uh, broccoli, <laughs> which had the name Silva, S-I-L-V on the label from the producers. And we, uh, he said, look, we're seeing it upside down. If you look at it upside down, it reads phallus. A little joke from Phil from beyond. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Uh, I really want to thank everybody for coming on the podcast. Um, Ted, I know I got to have you back to just drill down on, on making those uh, tarot cards. Um, you're all, of course, welcome again on the podcast anytime. Uh it's really important to get this perspective from people that the new Phil um, and we're, we're just, you know, our mission, you know, in the beginning was just a couple of friends, like wanting to like read a bunch of Philip K. Dick books. And, and, and it was funny because one of the jokes that everyone makes about my journey with the podcast is when it was first brought to me, I said, okay, I'll do it. But all I want to do is read the books and turn on the mics and I'm not going to do anything. And, I'm not going to do any research. Now I'm the one that has like eight pages of notes for every episode. And, and, and I'm the one that got way more into this. Um, and I just really appreciate everybody who keeps um, Phil's legacy going. Uh, Cause I think it's really important. And uh, on that note, everybody uh, thanks for joining the dickheads podcast and listening to our panel of experts. Um, and thank you guys for giving me your day. Thank, Thank you, you, everybody. And the listeners. Yeah, yeah. You know, and yes, the listeners, because there's a lot more of you than I ever expected. Uh, so thank you, everybody. Thank you.